today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson, and welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, will the Prime Minister let Jody Wilson-Raybould speak? We're going to have to wait until Budget Day to find out. How will the grounding of 737 MAX 8s affect people coming back from spring break this weekend? And once again, British Parliament is debating Brexit. Should they stay? Should they go? If it's taken this long, will they ever leave? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The uh, the federal government uh, voted to delay debate on whether Jody Wilson-Raybould should come back to testify. Uh, this... Uh, Sorry, we do have a clip. Okay, so here is a clip of what happened yesterday in the uh, Justice Committee meeting. Um, uh, the conservatives were trying to get uh, uh, either Jody Wilson-Raybould to testify or, or permission for her or some sort of date as to when that would happen or a vote if it was going to happen. And uh, the meeting was pretty much an in and out uh, as soon as they got in there and started asking this question. Uh, the liberal majority decided to just shut the meeting down, pushing all of this back until uh, March 20 or sorry, March 19th, which is the same day that the federal budget drops. And this will also be a closed door meeting. So uh, conservatives, the opposition NDP as well, um, are, are upset because uh, they think this is a, just a delay tactic. They think this is, uh, you know, trying to get the attention away from Jody Wilson-Raybould and the SNC-Lavalin scandal and and more on the budget. I don't know. Does anybody pay that much to attention to a budget anyway? Will a budget distract us? Uh, I'm not sure. Here's what happened uh, when it all fell apart yesterday. Mr. McKinnon? What a shame. What a shame. Cover up. Mr. Mr. Cover up. No, it's a cover up. I'm voting against. Mr. Cooper? I'm voting against this cover up. No. That means you should be ashamed of your. That being said, the motion is adopted. The meeting is adjourned. So basically what happened was the Liberals used their majority to just shut down the meeting, and you heard uh, uh, that was the vote to do that, and uh, obviously the majority won. Uh, let's bring in Melissa Lansman, Vice President, Public Affairs at Hill Knowlton Strategies, and with us now. Melissa, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. So uh, delay tactics from the Liberals, uh, obviously hoping to get this uh, off the front page. Is this is this uh, is this a distraction or is this just uh, delaying the inevitable? Why don't they just get this over with? Well, the first off, I don't really know why it's necessary to wait uh, for budget day. You know, what is the argument against calling uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould back? And, and, uh, and, and frankly, I'm not even sure that this is a partisan issue. Nothing explains yesterday's decision by a liberal majority of a justice committee to refuse Jody Wilson-Raybould the same opportunity that was presented to uh, Michael Warnick. If you remember, he's the clerk of the Privy Council that did testify twice. So uh, uh, will a budget distract Canadians away from this? I mean, I'm guessing on a good day, uh, the majority of the people don't even care much about the budget other than, you you know, perhaps the opening segment of their uh, nightly newscast that they're watching. I mean, is that going to distract the Canadian, uh, Canadian public away from this? I certainly think that that's what the Liberals think that the budget's going to do. Listen, this is a big budget. It's an election budget. Uh, you know, the Liberals have been overspending for, uh, for a number of years already, and I think that this budget is going to be full of goodies in order for them to face the electorate on, uh, in October. But why does it take six weeks to consider, for a committee to consider, or for a committee to really start doing its job? It gave Michael Warnick the opportunity 
opportunity to refute uh, the testimony that was uh, that was presented, and why won't it give uh, Judy Wilson-Raybould? There's just no explanation for it, and I think you heard it in the clip yourself. It you know it looks like a cover up. It certainly sounds like a cover up, and might very well be a cover up. Is this story still resonating with Canadians? I think, you know, I think what the Liberals have tried to do is, is I think they've tried to muddy the waters. This is not something that's difficult to understand. The Liberals effectively bullied their Attorney General into trying to make a decision that was, you know, that potentially was not legal, and when she didn't do it, they fired her, or they moved her. Whatever you want to call it, she was no longer Attorney General. And I think that, you know, at the crux of this, that's what people are looking for answers to. They're not looking for answers as to, uh, you know, the prosecution of SNC. This isn't a story about the facts of SNC. As soon as Judy Wilson-Raybould testified, it became a different story. Soon after that, they lost another credible minister uh, in Jane Philpott who, who took her side. That's when the scandal changed, and I think Canadians are still looking for an answer. Uh, surprise at the resignation of Jane Philpott. Surprise there hasn't been more. The rest of the troops have seemed to rally after that. Well, I think there is a concerted effort on the part of uh, Justin Trudeau as a leader, but this is the real first question of uh, of his leadership, and I don't know if there if there won't be more. I think they've corralled uh, everybody to uh, making statements, some of them being exactly the same about uh, Justin Trudeau's lib- uh, leadership. But this really is a crisis in confidence of leadership, and if he doesn't keep uh, you know caucus happy, uh, I think he's got a, a much bigger problem than. Than, uh, than SNC. Uh, this meeting coming up on the 19th, I understand, will be behind closed doors. Why the change in process uh, at this point? Well, I think that's something to ask the uh, Liberal-dominated uh, committee and the Liberal chair. Uh, I don't think Canadians are going to have an appetite uh, for a closed-door meeting where nothing can be reported, uh, you know, whether they, they vote down uh, the ability to, uh, to let her come back to committee or not. I think Canadians need to see that. Uh, and frankly, if the committee doesn't do its job, perhaps then there is another body that will do it. Perhaps the RCMP should investigate this because it seems to be a, a deadlock at, uh, at a committee that doesn't want to do its job. Uh, what about Jody Wilson-Raybould in all of this? What is her strategy? I mean, at the end of the day, she's still a liberal. What do you think she wants out of this? Well, look, I think she wants to be able to tell her story. I think Canadians want to hear her story. And I, I, you know, I think there is a side to her, uh, to her story. You know, whether she stays in caucus or not is, is not the question. It's about whether others stay in caucus. And they're out in their ridings this, this week over March break, uh, which is a break week from, uh, from the House. And I think that a lot of them, with, uh, with small pluralities in the last election, some of them won by less than 1,000 votes, I think they're really asking themselves, can I face the electorate uh, again with, uh, you know, with Justin Trudeau being the leader? Should I hitch my wagon to this guy? Um, what if what she says or what she has to say, say cripples the liberals in the next election? How does she balance that with being a liberal? Well, I think that's a, you know, I think that's a question for, for, for her. I think she has a side of the story to tell, whether it, you know, whether it cripples the liberals 
uh, or not further, uh, you know, that's a question for the Canadian electorate. But on October, Canadians are going to have a very stark choice to make. Are you, you know, are you going to, uh, uh, to vote for Justin Trudeau, who told you that he was one guy and he's presented as another guy? You know, he told you he was a feminist. He told you that he cared about Indigenous affairs. And all of this is really big brand damage to the, to the Liberal brand because the Justin Trudeau that you thought you were going to get is not the one that you got. Uh, we know what Justin Trudeau centers on and what the Liberal Party, the boxes they have to check off in order to, to win the election. You just spoke of that, the female gender, the Indigenous community. It's, it's also Quebec. You talked about uh, how the Jody Wilson-Raybould angle of this story sort of pushed the SNC-Lavalin uh, issue to, to the back burner. But at the end of the day, um, does he still not have to address that? If he did address that, would, not, would this not solve all of these issues. And again, it comes back to the question, not only why was she fired, but will the new attorney general uh, do what Jody Wilson-Raybould refused to do? Well, that's the million dollar question, whether, you know, whether the new attorney general will do what, uh, you know, what, what was said that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould didn't do. And, you know, in terms of election, uh, election prospects in Quebec, of course, Quebec is an important uh, is an important battleground for the liberals i think they've shored up support by using the message of jobs despite that not being the issue but there are a lot of other battlegrounds there's the battlegrounds of the 905 in and around toronto where uh, where premier doug ford won about every single riding there is uh, uh, there is a lot at stake in uh, in the East Coast, and there is a ton at stake in the lower mainland uh, of BC. So they're all election uh, battlegrounds. And if I was Justin Trudeau, I would worry about the the damage that this has created to uh, to the Liberal brand and how others can exploit that damage. What sort of conversations are going in the, in the back offices of the prime minister's office? How you know how they are to approach March nineteenth? Uh, how they will diffuse this? I, I mean, are, are they just trying to hope it all fizzles out, or do you think there's an actual plan there? Well, I think uh, yeah, I, I don't know if we've seen a, a concerted effort to uh, to plan this out methodically. This is a scandal now that is almost in its uh, sixth week, and it hasn't gone well for them. When I used to work in uh, in Ottawa, of course, Budget Day is a really, really big day in Ottawa. It's a big day for stakeholders of the government, uh, and it's a big day for for Canadians. So I think they hope that uh, this budget, full of goodies for an election, is going to wipe this off the front page. But I don't think that's the right tactic. Uh, again, you know, um, if you're if you're doing what what I do or what you do, you're terribly interested in all of this stuff. But come budget day, once the the two or three or four or five little grocery list items get checked off, uh, do, do Canadians care that much about this budget? Well, I, you know, I think that's up to uh, up to the Liberals in terms of how they roll out this budget. Whether they can um, get multiple news days off of certain items, whether they uh, they look at this budget as a strategic document to give you know provinces money for things that uh, perhaps those provincial governments uh, have failed to provide for people. You know, what around pharmacare, around around some of the big ticket items that we're still waiting for uh, for action for from the Liberals on. I, you know, I. I think it's their hope that this will wipe this off the front page, but I, I just don't think Canadians are, are there. I think they want to hear from Judy Wilson-Raybould. I think they want to hear what goes on, how the sausage is made, uh, and want some of those backdoor, some of those backroom conversations. 
this scandal uh, specifically has given Canadians sort of an inside look at how a prime minister's office uh, works. And, uh, you know, I don't think this one passes the smell test. Uh, No, it still doesn't. How long can Justin Trudeau keep hitching his wagon to SNC-Lavalin? Well, that's, uh, I mean, I think that's a question for the, uh, for the electorate, and I think we've seen a number of polls that have shown that, uh, that uh, this was damaging for, for the Liberals. But it's really about what happens next. It's really about whether this budget can deliver all of the things that Justin Trudeau said that he would deliver, whether it does anything for the middle class. Scott, if you're in the middle class and you've heard for the last three years that we're going to do things for the middle class and those working hard to join it, and really you don't see a difference in your life over the last four years, then I think Justin Trudeau has some really big questions to answer. Is I the, think. Sorry, go ahead. I think I'm going to I'm going to say one more thing, and I, you know, there's something I don't know if you've you've talked about this on air, but there's the Mark Norman trial coming mm-hmm. up. And uh, this one's going to seem uh, a bit of uh, a, a bit similar to uh, to what happened in SNC as it relates to uh, to prosecutions in this country. And if there's a pattern there, then Canadians are really going to start to ask more questions. Many thought when this first surfaced that it was too deep into the weeds for Canadians to grab hold of. But do you think the whole he said she said and at the end, you know, whether it's too deep into the weeds or not, Canadians do know right from wrong. Why do you think this is resonating? Well, I think you just said it yourself. They do know right from wrong, and they think something is wrong here, and they want to hear the story. And because the you know a liberal-dominated co- um, committee is shutting down that story, we have a prime minister that's really evasive on his answers. I think to assume that the Canadian that this is too deep in the weeds, or that the Canadian public understands, really underestimates the. Uh, uh, the the public or, or or Canadian voters. We are engaged. We want to know what's uh, what's going on with our government, and we want to know when things are wrong. And that's you know that's that's not what they're they're telling us. So obviously, it, it appears uh, that and again, until we hear all sides of the story and all the testimony from all points, we we won't know. But I guess for sure. But obviously, it appears that. Uh, the uh, Prime Minister's office is putting pressure allegedly on the Attorney General, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, she won't give in, so they, they fire her, they boot her from that portfolio, and she's out, and there's the, the shuffle ensues, so on and so forth. Uh, at the end of the day, David Lamenti is installed as the new Attorney General. Why hasn't he just picked up this ball and continued with it? Why, has, uh, why are they not using those other investigative tools to find out if, in fact, there is a deal with SNC-Lavalin? that can be made. Why are they not progressing with this file uh, as opposed to just watching the Jody Wilson-Raybould angle? Well, you know, I think there's lots of things that have progressed on this file. I, you know, I think the the resignation of Jane Philpott, like we were talking about earlier, uh, was a was a big step in this file. Now, the OECD, this is an organization uh, outside of the country of uh, of uh, you know, full of uh, G7 nations. They're now looking at our uh, our process. I think uh, the Liberals are smartly keeping David Lametti uh, out of this. I'm not sure that he has anything to uh, to necessarily add. And I think the opposition is right to uh, to keep calling Jody Wilson-Raybould to testify. I think Canadians want to hear her speak, and I think that it's incumbent on the Liberals to let her speak. Uh, one more question. Can this government uh, put through the SNC-Lavalin uh, deal considering what's been happening? Can they do what uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould won't? Would they do that now even with this controversy? 
Well, I think it's going to be very, very difficult for them to, to do that. There's been a lot of stories about the conduct of, uh, of SNC, uh, their activities on, uh, on, on bribing uh, government officials in other countries, uh, uh, the government paying for uh, for lots of things, including even uh, prostitutes for visits uh, for visits from uh, Libyan officials. I think it's it's going to be very very difficult to sort of hide this one because uh, Canadians expect more from uh, uh, from their companies, and uh, it's incumbent on the government to enforce a standard by which we expect uh, uh, companies to behave. And now chatter in the Toronto media about a downtown condo as the story continues to unravel. Uh, Melissa Lanceman is. Been with us, Vice President, Public Affairs at Hilton. Uh, sorry, Hill Knowlton Strategies. Melissa, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. This time yesterday, we were talking about the grounding of Boeing 737 Max 8 aircraft. Uh, this was the aircraft that was involved in the uh, crash uh, of last weekend of uh, the Ethiopian uh, airliner and very similar to the crash a year ago of an Indonesian uh, that happened rather in Indonesia, a Lion Air uh, plane that went down. Uh, yesterday, we announced that uh, that Canada was following suit and in fact would take the planes out of the sky. At that point, uh, the U.S. still undecided, but later on in the afternoon, they also uh, have uh, grounded the planes, which uh, Boeing, obviously a American company. What does this mean as we move forward? How long is this fix going to take? And how does it affect people coming back from spring vacation? Let's bring in Keith McKay, McKay International. He's an aviation expert and with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hey, Scott. Good afternoon. So, new information. Mark Garneau, the transportation minister, said yesterday, and Donald Trump followed up with this in the United States later on, uh, that uh, new information had come out that uh, that allowed them to uh, comfortably make this decision. They said it wasn't definitive, but certainly created enough suspicion that uh, it warranted uh, grounding the aircraft. What sort of images would they have found from satellite that would have confirmed this for them? That's really interesting because they haven't released any of that information. Uh, maybe it was just an excuse to be able to ground the airplanes, which really isn't a bad idea. Hmm. Uh, the Canadian government could do it easier than the U.S. government because our FAA certified the airplane and Boeing produces it. And so far, there's been nothing discovered wrong with the airplane. Uh, they're looking at a lot of different things, but we have so many people that were afraid to fly on it that they mm. wouldn't know whether their flight would be a max or not, and they might want to cancel the flight at the last minute. But it was really a mess for the airlines. So regardless of whether the airplane's safe or not, the best decision was probably to ground them all, get this thing sorted out, get them back in the air where everybody's confident in them, and keep going as we have been. In, in other words, so uh, if the rest of the world or, or big chunks of the world are, are banning this plane from their airspace, it's only a matter of time before North American carriers have to do the same thing. Exactly. So might as well, let's get it over with, ground the airplane, let's fix it, and uh, get on about our business flying. Uh, 
Uh, we the information we heard from Mark Garneau yesterday, our transportation minister, said that there's imagery of from uh, from satellites that that's very similar to the Indonesian crash. Uh, that the plane was having issues accelerating and and keeping it in the nose up and and so on and so forth was very inconsistent and that was the information that led them the Canadians to to, to making this decision. Have you heard anything about that or 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 any uh, rumor of that sort of theory? I've heard that, but I'm surprised that they have a satellite up there that can detect the pitch movement of an airplane climbing out on the ground. Now, the radar certainly shows that it shows that the uh, vertical speed was unsteady right now, what could be this be it could be a pilot's trying to fight an autopilot that hadn't been disconnected mm-hmm. that was causing the airplane to not climb because the uh, Ethiopian airplane never climbed in the radar track that we have about oh, maybe 1200 feet above the uh, initial airport elevation but it continued to accelerate and it got up to 383 knots without ever reducing the airspeed. Yeah. So we didn't get that from satellite. We got it from the radar track, and it was available almost immediately after the accident. Now, that's certainly not correct, and that certainly raises some eyebrows. Now, what could that be? Could it be pilots not following the proper procedure? Yes. Uh, could it be something wrong with the airplane? I'm not sure. But we have had some instances in the States Since the uh, Jakarta accident, where two pilots have reported that they connected the autopilot and it caused the airplane to start descending at 12 to 1,500 feet per minute. Mm -hmm. So what they did is they disconnected the autopilot and continued the flight. Now, did that happen in Ethiopia, where the pilots so trained to depend on the autopilot that they failed to disconnect it and tried to just override it? That's certainly going to be a question that we're going to look at. And was that not the situation with the Lion Air crash in Indonesia? Well, the Lion Air crash, we got a lot of information on that. We know that the angle of attack indicator had been creating an issue. And on the previous four flights, the same thing happened. But the pilots, it only affected the captain's instruments. The co-pilot's instruments were fine. And in the other uh, four instances, I just used the co-pilot's instruments and landed the airplane. In this one, they apparently uh, didn't either didn't know what the procedures were or didn't follow them, but it was just the fifth iteration of the same problem where they'd been not able to fix the airplane. Had they fixed the airplane, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Was this not all covered when the Lion airplane went down? Because I thought that was the story then. And then, you know, obviously there was more training involved in order to, to, to bring pilots and everybody up to speed on how to override the system. I guess my question is, is didn't we learn enough from Lion Air that this wouldn't happen again? Well, I would ask you the same question. Uh, we certainly should have. We had that information. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, Boeing issued an emergency airworthiness directive that clearly explained that to all pilots who would fly this airplane. Right. So these pilots in uh, uh, Ethiopia should have had that information. Was it incorporated as part of their training? We don't know. These are the questions that I'm sure will be uh, uncovered as the investigation proceeds. 
Are you surprised since this incident seems to be similar within these two different uh, crashes at this point anyway, are you surprised we haven't heard more of this? In other words, situations where uh, this sort of thing had started to happen and then they overrode the system. Um, It it just seems odd again that, uh, that, that something that has already happened seems to have to have happened twice. Do you think that has something to do with the training of the pilots? North American pilots perhaps better trained than others? It certainly could be. We'll certainly be looking at that. My big concern is the Indonesian co-pilot only had 200 hours. That wasn't enough training for him to be able to be on a sophisticated jet airplane. So uh, what was going on? Why wasn't he uh, more experienced? Uh, Was it sort of a one-man band where the captain was having to do everything by himself? Uh, these are good questions that may not be very politically correct over there, but we'll soon find out. Uh, is is this a situation where uh, they're relying too much on technology instead of training pilots? In other words, uh, you know, I, I had heard chatter earlier on on this that, uh, you know, obviously if a pilot trains on a certain plane and then moves to a, another plane, which, you know, is, is a little different than training is required, whereas with technology, you can make more of a universal system. Are we depending too much on technology and not enough of pilot training? Technology is being used to replace hands-on flying skills. And it worked the other way around. Years ago, when technology first became prevalent in the cockpit, I mean, the older pilots, they never had anything to do with computers. They'd never seen one. And they were great at flying the airplane. But when they uh, had to use the uh, electronic flight displays, a lot of them washed out. Now it's kind of the other way around. Hmm. The people coming up now don't have the hands-on flying skills. And they become much more dependent on the, uh, the computer skills. So they work with minimal hand flying skills compared to what it used to be years ago. So we got to strike a balance. We got to have pilots that are both able to fly the airplane manually and be able to use the automation. If we can get there, we're where we need to be. Do you think that's a lesson that will be learned from these two incidents? Well, it'll certainly be learned. Whether or not it's implemented, we need to see. Uh, the uh, Boeing said that uh, right after this crash, uh, before we got to the grounding of all the planes, that um, they had issued a, a patch for this, some sort of uh, technology patch. What does that say about this? Does this does that say that there was an incident um, that perhaps they should have had a handle on before it got to the pilots? Well, my understanding is the patch won't be issued until April. And uh, we don't know much about it. We don't know what it patches. They're not telling us, like with most computer software patches, that they tell you what you want. They want you to know about it, but don't necessarily give you all the details. And if we don't really know what caused the accident at this point, uh, how could it be effective at this point, right? Exactly. I'm sure there's some things they're going to change. They're going to probably give more training on the system. Uh, I'm sure our training aspects are going to increase, but we'll see what happens. How does this affect air travel across, well, the world now, uh, considering, uh, you know, the time of year that it is and, and spring break and such uh, for us up here anyway? Uh, how does that affect what's going on in, in the airline industry? Big problem. We've lost a lot of our capacity. There's 370-some airplanes that have been removed from the worldwide fleet now. So, uh, Sorry, can you give me that number again? How many do you think are, are out of the fleet now? 
I, I believe there are about 370 of the Maxis flying. Wow. So obviously that's going to make a dent. What is rolled in to replace them? I mean, are not all uh, aircraft being used, or are they bringing stuff out of dry dock? I mean, how do you do that? Do you just reroute things, reschedule things? Well, you have a limited amount of airplanes. You don't park airplanes with no use. That's uh, too expensive. So while there's some uh, surplus capacity, there's probably not very much, and there's companies that lease airplanes, but I'm sure everything they've got to lease is already spoken for. So until it's uh, solved, there's going to be a capacity problem. Maybe the fix is called Rail Canada. So uh, right now, there's 307 of these things parked somewhere. Somewhere, yes. And what do they do with them up until that time? I mean, is there is there anything that can be done to these aircraft until Boeing figures this all out? Well, we don't know what to do to them, but they could be doing more pilot training, uh, could be filling some of those gaps where the manuals were deemed to be uh, not to the level where they should be. These things can be fixed. Pilots can be put in simulators if they're not flying the maxes and be brought up to speed so we can solve some of the training problems in the meanwhile. How significant is this to the airline industry? How will this change things moving forward, do you think? Well, my hope is that we'll realize what we need to do with the more sophisticated airplanes and how we need to get people properly qualified to fly them. So we don't put people in there that are basically warm bodies in the seats that aren't able to handle every situation. This is the critical part. Uh, do, do you think in the end, um, uh, what do you think, do you think that will be the issue? The fact that people just were not correctly trained to handle this when this type of situation happens? We can't get our fingers into much of this. The only thing we do know was the co-pilot had 200 hours. That should not have happened, in my opinion. And that may be the tip of the iceberg. But places like that are where we have to look for places to correct the situation. Considering what has happened are and how many of these things were in the air, are you surprised that, this, that more of this hasn't happened? No, I'm not. I think the majority of people flying this airplane are properly trained and able to handle the situation. I wouldn't be afraid to get on one tomorrow if it said Air Canada on the side or American or Southwest, because I know they've been operating these airplanes successfully since they've come out. Are you surprised we haven't heard more of these scenarios or more of when pilots, like you were talking about the Lion Air uh, crash that the the pilots who had flown the plane previous had experienced uh, some sort of uh, problem with the plane. Are, are Are you surprised we haven't heard more incidents of that, of issues with this plane? Well, we don't know. We do know that the two incidents I just mentioned about the autopilot malfunction, there may be many other things that haven't been reported. So... If they're not reported, we can't know them. So that's why it's incumbent on pilots when they have an issue to uh, to document it so that it can be corrected. How much damage does this do to Boeing as a company? Is this an easy fix for them? I'm going to buy some Boeing stock. <laughs> I think six months down the road, I think everything will be back to normal, and they've yeah. got a huge book of business. Yeah, They've got like well over 4,000 of these things on order. So it's important. About 80% of the book of business is for the MAX airplane. 
Uh, do you think that the U- the United States reacted and Canada reacted too slowly to this? Do you think the other countries acted too quickly in grounding these? Well, I think in view of the circumstances and the complications that it produced and the doubts in people's minds, it was better to ground the airplane, even though there may be nothing wrong with it, just to put... Well, we're inconveniencing the public. They don't have to worry about riding on a dash if they're scared of it, or a max if they're scared of it. When do you think that we will have an answer? When do you think, uh, obviously the black box is in France right now, that's being decoded. When do you think we'll have more information on this, Keith? Well, it depends on what's politically correct. (laughs) I hate to say it, but there are a lot of uh, irons in the fire here. Uh, it's in Boeing's and our airlines here's best interest to get this thing going as quickly as possible. So we need to candidly look at what happened, make the proper decisions as to how it can be corrected and implement it. If it's something simple, it could happen very quickly. But considering how long this airline has already been in the air, chances are it's not that major. Is that is that naive to say? Yeah. It is? Yeah, I think so. How come? I just think that we've got enough indications now that at least one of the crew members in the cockpit doesn't have much experience. Yeah, yeah. If this is the case, then what about if we audited all their other crews? What are we going to find? Keith McKay has been with us. McKay International. He is an aviation expert talking about Boeing 737 MAX 8s being grounded uh, worldwide now as of yesterday. Keith, thanks for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated. That's okay, Scott. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know how many times we've talked about Brexit on this uh, show, uh, and, and I think every time that we do, we think we've come to something, some sort of turning point, something that has moved this discussion forward or, uh, or in, in somehow pointed to some sort of light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, for the people of the UK. Uh, British Parliament at it again today, uh, this time debating whether the Brexit deal should be delayed. And where do we go from there? I'm not quite sure. Uh, Let's try to decode it again. Marvin Ryder is with us, business professor at DeGroote School of Business, McMaster University. He is with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. Much appreciated as always. Now, Scott, first thing, uh, have you taken your Valium? You need, you need a Valium. <laughs> and I also have to walk you over here now to the whiteboard because I've got to grab a pen so we can diagram what's going on here. This is just bizarre, and it, it shows no sign of getting any better. Nope. And the odd thing about it is the EU's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll try to, we'll, and, and it, this is all within the UK. You'd think the people of the United Kingdom would just be completely frustrated and exhausted with this debate. Yeah, I mean, if you think the SNC-Lavalin scandal is a scandal, watch Brexit. We got nothing on what's going on there. You know, this is tame in comparison. So let me take you back just a little bit here. A few years ago, uh, Britain had a referendum on leaving the European Union, and overall in the United Kingdom, it passed 52% to 48%, with three notable exceptions. The area of Scotland actually voted to stay. The area of Northern Ireland voted to stay. And the city of London voted to stay. But when you put all the votes together, it was to go. So Theresa May, uh, uh, David Cameron resigns. Theresa May becomes prime minister. And she invokes what's known as Clause 50 or Article 50 in the European Union Agreement that starts a clock ticking. And when she invoked it, they even gave a date, March 29th. 
2019 at 11 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, we're leaving the European Union. Almost from the moment they invoked the clause, the idea was that they really wanted what I call a soft Brexit, meaning, well, we want to leave the European Union, but we don't really want to leave everything. So we'd like to have a negotiation. We'll stay in this. We'll cooperate on this. We'll trade like this. You know, the big thing was we want to take control of our immigration policy and basically stop a flood of refugees. So she negotiates, she negotiates, she negotiates. We get to January of 2019, two months ago. Theresa May takes her soft Brexit deal to Parliament and is resoundingly defeated. Biggest defeat in British parliamentary history. So she sort of stands up and says, what do you want me to do now? Sweeten the deal, sweeten the deal. So... And then she ends up winning right after that a vote of non-confidence, which seems so bizarre. They right. don't like what she's doing, but they want her to stay there and keep doing it. They, she, they feel she's the best person to lead them forward. So, okay, great. So she goes back, she speaks to the European Union representatives, and she tries to sweeten the deal. I will say to you that the deal that she put on the table this week isn't really substantially different, but, you know, around the margins there were a couple of little things. So on... on um, i got to get my dates right now. On Tuesday, they voted on Elizabeth May's Sweeten deal, and it was defeated again. Not as badly as January, but still a significant defeat. Okay, she said, if you don't like that, then let's, uh, let's have a no-deal Brexit, a hard Brexit, meaning we're just on, on uh, 11 p.m. on the 29th, we're out, and on the 30th, who knows what's going to happen. What do you think of that? So they had a vote on that yesterday. And they rejected that. No, 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 we don't want to leave the European Union without a deal. Okay, so now what do you want to do? So today they are debating a motion for an extension of Clause 50, but now you have to ask for the extension. It's not automatic. And the question is how long, so that's one thing debating. The big push, if you will, is a three-month extension till June 30th. But there is a cadre of people saying, I don't see what we can do in three months. Let's make it until the end of the year. Let's make it a nine-month extension. Uh, and while that's going on, an MP stood up, as you're allowed to do in parliamentary procedure, and moved an amendment to the motion. Scott, I don't know if you're even up to this. They moved an amendment earlier today, this morning, to say uh, rather than, uh, uh, ha- or in addition to having an extension, let's have a second referendum. Yeah. That amendment has just been defeated. Again, quite resoundingly, so... Let's recap again. We don't like the deal you negotiated. We don't want to leave without a deal, and we don't want to have another referendum. I am hoping, I am hoping that by the end of the day, there will be a majority of people who can agree on some amount of an extension. The head of the European Union said that they're not opposed to the idea of an extension, but before they would automatically grant the extension, they would need to be convinced that some more time is going to actually allow them to do something, especially since the European Union feels they've already given the best deal they can. And that's a valid argument. If they, haven't, if they are where they are after this amount of time, what's 90 days going to do? Exactly. So, you know, this is where we stand at the moment, and I should share with you, let's just suppose the extension was defeated, There's another group of MPs that are proposing that tomorrow, Friday, they have a vote on simply rescinding uh, Article 50 and saying, oops, my bad, didn't mean to invoke it, let's pull it. There actually is a European court decision that said that they would be allowed to do that up until 10.59 p.m. on March 29th. They could say, sorry, we're not going now. 
And, and there is a bit of a head of steam saying, you know, what's left? Maybe that's the one that they can all agree on. But it is bedlam over there. So, wait a sec. They don't want another a vote on another referendum, but what's the difference between that and what you just said? Well, that's the interesting question. And, and what we've got now is, uh, in parliamentary procedure, and this is true in Canada as well, you have a liberal party, you have a conservative party, and within those parties there's a person who's designated as the whip. And the idea of the whip is you make sure uh, your members turn out, and you also make sure they vote the way, in essence, you tell them to vote. So we very rarely have what are called free votes, where you can just vote your conscience. You need to vote the party lines, and it's the whip who keeps them all in place. The whips are saying that they can't keep anybody going in a straight line. You have labor MPs that are defying their leader. You have... um, uh, conservative MPs defining their leader, the Tory MPs de- defining their leader. You know, it, it's just it's just every a free fall out there, free for all out there. And I don't really know what's going to happen, other than it's just grand kabuki theater. What does this do for min- minority governments? <laughs> Man, um, so uh, well, remember that Theresa May isn't a minority, yeah, and, yeah. and her support comes from a group of sort of hardliners from Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland's big concern and why they didn't want to leave the European Union is that uh, Southern Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, uh, you know, there has always been a lot of tensions going on yep. there, and it's been the best it's ever been now in the last three or four or five years. And there's a porous border, meaning I can live in Northern Ireland and just cross over into Ireland, work there, come back, or visit family. Yep. And it's just so easy. If there isn't a deal, then what's, the, what's March 30th going to look like? Do I suddenly have to have a passport to yeah. cross? Will there Is be there a wall card? there? Yeah. 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 Well, Donald Trump would tell you to build a wall. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, what, what's it going to look like? And Scotland, what's going on in Scotland, you remember it was about six years ago that they had a vote to secede from the United Kingdom. That was lost, but the biggest reason why it was lost was that those people wanting to secede from the United Kingdom said, look, we'll leave, but then we'll automatically join the European Union. And the European Union said, oh, wait a minute, not, not so fast. Just because you leave doesn't mean we'll grant you admission. If you want to be part of the European Union, the best way to do it is stay attached to the United Kingdom. Hmm. Well, now the United Kingdom wants to go. So there's a group of people in Scotland saying, well, if they're leaving, we want to stay time to separate again this is these are the forces all at play as this is being debated uh can the uk uh can they go back to the way it was without another referendum is that possible yes so the referendum itself wasn't binding uh it didn't mean that this had to happen but if you and you know uh, we we talk about this on a lot of other fronts well look that's what the people voted for i wanted doug ford or i wanted justin trudeau stop sniping Mm -hmm. let the person do what he did i wanted to leave you should respect that and outside the parliament buildings there are great gobs of people said we spoke now you do you listen yeah but there are other people who say well is that really what you meant when you voted and what I'm trying to say to you, Scott, is that there's a great uh, belief that when people voted to leave the European Union, what they were really saying was we want to take control of our immigration <laughs> policy. <laughs> Whoops. Whoops. And so, you know, it, would it be that wrong? Now, those people who are hardliners who really want to go, yes, I wanted to go. But there's a whole bunch of people in the middle who say, oh, you know, now that I really understand what going's all about, 
All I really want to do is to take control of immigration. But can somebody emerge from this? Uh, there are calls for all of them to resign. Theresa May, yep. Jeremy Corbyn, you know, you clearly aren't the right people. Who can emerge that can bring uh, sanity out of this chaos? Those are the people. That's the person who should be the next prime minister. Uh, considering where we are and the options that you just uh, listed, is there any other solution other than to just fold everything up and call another election? Well, see, now that's, uh, sorry, that's one more option. <laughs> I, I actually think they're going to vote for an extension. And, and I'm hoping they'll pick a timeline that gives them enough time to do something. But I would say if I was sitting in Parliament and contributing to this debate, fine, I'm all in favor of buying us three more months, but let's give Theresa May an indication of what she's got to bring back for us to love, because three months with no direction doesn't get us anywhere. Your question is also very valid. If nothing gets passed, so we, we don't agree on the divorce agreement, we don't want to leave without a divorce agreement, we don't want another referendum, we don't want an extension, then, hey, I think if I'm Theresa May, throw up my hands and say, you know what, we need to go back to the people and have an election. And that's not such a crazy thing, except you've still got that Clause 50 outstanding on March right. 29th. There's not enough time to have that election before that expires. So maybe we buy the time, and then in buying the time you have an election. There are people suggesting that as well. Hmm. Uh, is there really any last-minute bargaining to go on? I mean, you know, the, the, I remember with, with the renegotiation of NAFTA, it was all sort of waiting till the 11th hour before anything of any substance, uh, you know, pushed it forward or pulled it back. Is there any, uh, from, from, its, from the way it looks now, there, there really isn't any rabbit that someone can pull out of a hat and go, oh, yeah, that's going to be the, the situation that will solve this problem. Well, I mean, there is this hope. Let me try to explain it to you this way. There is this hope. So um, yesterday they had a vote and said they don't want to leave without a deal. That's a lovely thing to say, but you've invoked the clause. The clause is going to cause you to leave, whether you like it or not, at 11 p.m. on March 29th. So even though you say you don't want to leave without a deal, that, that's the clause doesn't say that you have any other choice. And that's what some people are hoping is that when they realize that you either hold your nose and vote for what Theresa May has negotiated, or you leave without a deal, they'll say the lesser of the two evils is the Theresa May deal. Now, whether they'll come to that realization this week, or would it take next week, or would it take a couple more days the week after, there is that possibility that what seemed untenable on Tuesday, suddenly in the face of leaving with no deal whatsoever and the bedlam that follows, well, Theresa's deal looks better all the time. So, so there is a there there is a reason just to keep pushing this till the eleventh hour. I mean, at what point does Theresa May go? I, I can't do anything more for you here, people. I mean, I've done everything. Well, that's that's what she is saying now, and that was, in fact was her argument to the her own members of her party to say, please support this because that's the best we're going to get. But you know, Scott, again, uh, politics being the theater it is. I want to show my constituents that I'm fighting for them and doing this. Uh, maybe I have to be dragged kicking and screaming. That's, again, why I actually think today's vote is going to pass, because kicking it down the road, though it doesn't actually resolve anything, allows some sober second thought here, and then maybe something could emerge. If everybody has to be dragged kicking and screaming, do you think the U.K. is questioning whether this is even worth it and just forget about it all and stay in the EU? I mean, is there an appetite for that? Well, there's got to be people thinking that for sure. And, in fact, that's the EU's message is really we'd rather you stay. We'd rather you just come to your senses and cancel this. But what would it take? And it would require, I think it would require tremendous leadership, and maybe I'd even go so far as to call it arrogant leadership, to, to go on television, if I'm Theresa May, and say, ladies and gentlemen, 
you know, this is the mess we're in. I, I understand how you voted a few years ago, but I think this is what you were trying to tell me. I'm going to tell you right now I want to cancel our, our departure and instead stay within the EU and then negotiate within the EU a better control of our immigration policies. That would take a lot of backbone. I, I, I'm probably cheapening it to say it like this, but this is very Churchillian in the way it would be done to stand up and say, no, I, I think I've got the right plan. But right now, if people are so caught up in democracy trying to do what they think people want, rather than standing back and saying, I think I know a little better. If she said that, would that not just automatically force another election? It could. It could. And certainly if, if there was another election, there wouldn't be time to replace her as leader. So she could really come forward and said, this is my position. Vote for my party and vote for me if that's what you want if you don't kick me out and and i'm not actually clear at all how this would go the labor party led by jeremy corbyn has said if there was a snap election they would be advocating to stay within the european union so now if both leaders are advocating to stay then how do you choose who to vote for yeah. uh, I, you know i think this could all be very interesting but trust me again scott this is more more craziness before we see sanity over there. Uh, obviously, lots of lessons to be learned in the UK. What about the EU? What have they learned from this process? Well, I, again, I'm not I'm not completely sure. They they've watched this in both shock and dismay. Start from the beginning, they never really wanted uh, Britain to leave, and I think they felt that David Cameron uh, gave up on a negotiated settlement around these. Uh, um, immigration issues, I think they were prepared to talk about them, right. but but David Cameron sensed that here might be a moment to get Britain to reinforce their uh, commitment to the European Union by holding the referendum. He never in his wildest imaginings thought he was going to lose that vote, um, and so he miscalculated. I don't think they wanted the vote. I think they want Britain to stay. I think they believe that everyone's stronger together. I'll give you my bias. I think they're stronger keeping everybody together. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think they're saying we, we haven't learned anything other than the strength of our union. And here's somebody who says they want to go, but they can't bring themselves to go. Doesn't that also tell you how strong our union is? And again, you don't have to be a poli-sci professor to figure out, you know, if it's taken this long, you really have to ask if they want to go. Exactly. Or, or what is the key component sure. of a deal? And, and again, uh, we call that unscrambling the egg. We've, we have our own situation here in Hamilton. I know a little bit about this, about de-amalgamating and unscrambling the egg. But you can't cherry pick. You know, well, I want to keep this, but I want to give you that. I'm going to keep this. No, no, you've got to take the good and the bad together if you go. And I think, again, as Britain is looking at this, they, they realize there isn't as much bad as they first thought. But who's going to stand up and give them a little shake, kind of get them out of this hangover, if you will, that they're in. I just don't know which leader is going to do that. So they've got a, a self-inflicted situation here yes. with no out. Um, is this a turning point? Well, you would, I mean, you would hope so. You would hope something's got to break between now, in essence, the next 12 days between now and the 29th, something's got to break to get sanity returning. I, I get this. Trump is saying he thinks that it's crazy what's going on in Britain. When Donald Trump is telling you that what you're doing is crazy, you're really getting it from the master. So <laughs> that, may, that may, may want you make to, uh, may make you do the opposite, though. Well, you never know. Yeah. If I'm all of a sudden agreeing with Donald Trump, then maybe I have to question my own ideology. Exactly. Exactly. The only thing from our side of the pond is this: this uncertainty is going to spill over into our stock markets. Certainly, a no deal Brexit departure would cause a lot of turbulence on the market, at least for the first couple of weeks of April. 
Having said that, there's also a big window of opportunity. If Britain really does go, they're going to need trading partners, and every every study I've seen over there says number one on their list is to strike a free trade deal with Canada. We can only stand by and say, once you figure out what you want to do, how do we help you? We consider ourselves a partner, but we can't lead you out of this. We can only assist you when you tell us which way you want to go. Is it naive to say that considering what we've done or how, you know, the events that have happened to get us here and then, you know, obviously the British Parliament, where they are, is it, do you think it, 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 more people will, will say, guess what, we're not going. If we can't make this happen to date, it ain't going to happen. You know, uh, I, I hear what you're saying. What would be really nice is that we were having this conversation on Friday and that the House of Commons wasn't going to sit for a couple of days and then they could sit and reflect. Because they're caught up in the turmoil of this, this is kind of like a protest movement and the mob is moving one way or another. When you're in the mob, you can't get sanity. Yeah. If you could break up the mob for a couple of days and let them reflect, this may be where they're at by next week, but I don't think you're going to hear that this week. They're too busy with their parliamentary procedures and a motion of the amendment and amendment to the amendment and party of the first part and what have you. If we can get past the game plane with a little sober reflection, we might begin to hear that more next week than I think this week. For now, it's just a circus out of control. Marvin Ryder has been with us, business professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. Marvin, always fun. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. I'll put the whiteboard away. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm not sure if I know anymore, but I think I do. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.